and welcome to the Collective Wisdom Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be a wiser version of yourself. This is a podcast that helps you to tap into your own inner wisdom and find the answers within you for how to live your best life. I'm your host, Kat Preston. I'm a certified life coach, and I help people to turn down the noise in their heads and tune into the wisdom in their hearts. Every week, I'll be asking my guests to tell their stories about what they've learned along the way and share some of their wisdom with us. I'm so thrilled you can join us. Hey there, my wise friends, and welcome to another episode of Collective Wisdom, which this week is with my friend Rumi Tsuchihashi, who is all about capturing the tiniest moments in life. Rumi has written a book called I Want to Remember This, recognizing the tiny moments that make up a life. And this weekend here in the UK was a perfect example of one of those moments. It's been one of those blue sky October weekends with cold, crisp mornings and more sunshine than we dare to hope for. The sort of days that really give meaning to the word autumnal. Sim and I got up really early and went to Richmond Park and we saw deer rutting and parakeets flying in their hundreds overhead. It really was a very special moment that I hope to remember for a very long time. So with that, I'll pass you over to Rumi to tell us a bit more about the book and how it came about and why it's so important to her to capture those moments that really matter. With me today is my friend Rumi Tsuchihashi, who I first met when she joined the Story Skills Workshop and absolutely aced it with her storytelling. Rumi has since gone on to become part of Bernadette Jiwa's community, The Right Company, and it's been so lovely to get to know her a bit better and to discover a bit more about her writing. Rumi is many things, but primarily she's a wordsmith, a copywriter by trade and author of I Want to Remember This, Recognising the Tiny Moments that Make Up a Life. She's also here to tell us about an exciting new project she's just launching, But before we get into that, I can't think of a better way to introduce her properly than by telling the story she shares on her own About page, which reads as follows. Hi, I'm Rumi. I help you communicate who you are, what you do, and the difference you make in words that open minds and move hearts. Once I wrote from a desk that doubled as storage for large boxes of tiny toothpastes. I was a 20-year-old summer intern then, hired to help a group of Red Cross programmers that distributed hygiene care kits to homeless people all over Seattle. I gathered up loads of information and made a beautiful newsletter with all my heart. And you know what? My supervisor was so proud. She mailed out, by snail mail, many copies. This is how I launched a great career. Yes, and I almost disowned this origin story. You see, I knew deep down that something was off about that newsletter, but I got away with it, so I kept quiet about it. Since that summer, I've worked with Microsoft, Boeing, the University of Washington, Seattle Japanese Garden, Compendium, Asian Counseling and Referral Services, Joanna Bloor, and several New York City-based entrepreneurs. My functions have ranged from a cultural interpreter, event producer, CRM manager, and brand slash content strategist, to the art director, editor, writer, and storyteller, sometimes all in one job, and then some. All these years, that niggling off feeling stayed in the background, 
propelling me to hone my craft. And I've learned that there's a difference between offering well-written information and giving people a reason to care. The toothpaste I sat beside, I thought about them as mouth-cleaning objects and that getting more of them into the hands of homeless people meant success. When in truth, those tubes were tiny respites from a reality so harsh it'd take your breath away. I should have treated each care kit as a unit of dignity with my words and understood that one person restoring the dignity of another, even in minuscule ways and in overwhelming circumstances, are seeds of hope. Those seeds, as they multiplied, are the success that was worth measuring. What I now know about success, true success, and giving people a reason to care, shows up in my work every day. As you consider what you do in the world and how you talk about it, I heartily recommend you one, aim higher than what you can get away with, two, measure what really matters, and three, own your story, warts and all. Then watch as the opportunities you seek arise to meet you. And if I can help, please do reach out to let me know. So that, Rumi, really says it all way better than I could have done in a perfect nutshell. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so Thank much you for having me. You are so welcome. So my first question has got to be, do you think you were always a writer? Have you always been that little kid who was just scrawling things down on pieces of paper? Yes and no. Um, I was always a reader. I wow. think the thing that I identified with was a reader, someone who was voracious for stories. Um, I, I never really thought about that there's a person behind the writing until probably until the first time I got published, which was when I was eight years old. And I wrote a Christmas poem and it got published in the elementary school newsletter and seeing something and this was for sent out to adults on the cover and it was a moment of oh words this is what happens there's a person behind the words and they write something and it gets out into the world so um it, it was that reflecting back that taught me that oh i'm a writer too um until that then, is... I think I was just immersed in the creativity itself and the joy of reading that I hadn't considered it. But you know what? You know, to be published at eight, I'm sorry, that means you have always been a writer. Because <laughs> for most people, they're only just getting around to picking up a pencil about then anyway. So to say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, no, no, it was it was quite late on in life. <laughs> I finally <laughs> realized I was a writer. No. Oh, I think so. Maybe this is a, a good way. Why it's been hard for me to own writer as a title, which took many, many, many decades yeah. afterwards. It may have to do with that story because the poem I published was about Christmas. And I didn't um, grow up in a family. We were we were not Christians. We were uh, like the the Japanese family in a very white suburban town um, outside of Seattle. And um, I had always looked at Christmas from the outside looking in, imagining what it's like for other people. So what this poem was about was my imagination and fantasy about what it would be like to feel like I belonged inside the Christmas tradition. 
rather than looking at it. And for that poem to be the one that was published gave me an instant sense of um, imposter syndrome or fraud because it wasn't my actual lived experience. It's what I hoped it would be. But I think that's probably what captured everyone's imagination that you had kind of pulled out all the the best bits of what you saw through those windows or what you imagined it to be and actually the reality is there's a lot of fights yes. and a lot of yeah arguments right. over the, the dinner table and, wow, wow so many many years later I found out that all um almost all of the popular not all of them most of the popular Christmas tunes that I related to were in fact written by um Jewish composers who seriously Yes. So their lyrics and the music were all written from the same point of view from which I had written that poem all those years ago. And I had no idea. So, so, so things like have yourself a merry little Christmas or what? Yeah, I wish I had done research on this ahead of time. But yes, there are several popular Christmas songs that are written. So um, we buy into the, the kind of almost from a nostalgic point of view or the sentimentality yes. of it or the the yes. emotion you want to evoke, which yes. is that warm, cozy Christmas feeling that, you know, we yes. all kind of, I think, I think a lot for a lot of people, the truth is that we imagine that's everybody else's Christmas, but ours is actually just full of a lot of stress and have I bought enough presents and like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. Yes. When, when really what Christmas should be about is that, moment of stopping celebrating in the smallest ways and absolutely gosh that is just so so interesting partly because you 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 clearly were a writer all of your life and you you have obviously had this ability to turn those fantasies imaginings you know emotions almost into words which is yeah. what you do so well thank you yeah yes so tell me a bit about that growing up, because it must have been so difficult in a way to to be that person who was looking through the windows. If everybody, so what you're saying is everybody else in the class was kind of celebrating Christmas, and you you were from a, a slightly different family. Yes, or at least that's what it looked to me because yeah. I was looking at had, looking at the shiny people. And the shiny right, people, right. right? I'm not, I can't even say objectively that I was the only person who didn't feel like I belonged, but my eyes were not trained on the people who were feeling the way I was looking yeah. at the shiny people. Um, so yes, the way I grew up was that um, my father worked for a large international company based in Japan. I was born there and um, he um, got overseas assignments, which happened to um, always come to Seattle, Washington in the United States. And so our family moved back and forth every time his job assignment switched. So there were chunks of time, several years at a time that we moved back and forth. So you spend a few years in Japan and then a few few years in yeah, the Yeah, that's how it was in the beginning. And it, for me, it ended up being slightly longer. So a few years in Japan, my first few years. So I first moved to the States when I was three. And then we moved back when I was nine. And then there were several times between nine and when I finished high school. So that was a really long stretch that we were in Japan where we were going to move and then we didn't. We were going to move and then we didn't. So even though we were there it ended up being nine whole years that I stayed there 
it there was always this oh we, we're gonna get asked to get up and move every few years that was sort of looming wow. so even so though there was we were no physically real sort of there, steady rock of permanence there was no sense of yes where you at any, any moment we could get up and move was always the the sense that i'd had and in some ways the not getting up and moving when the anticipation was there was its own challenge gosh gosh and so when you were back in japan yeah did you did that feel like home i mean did you have a sense of longing for what wasn't there or how, how did it work for you um no <laughs> it did not feel like home um it's it, the first time our family moved back i i it accompanied it came with a lot of bullying so i looked like the other children but my body language my tone of voice a lot of things about me were so foreign even though i looked like them that i think wow. there was a, a it it provoked my classmates in a way that someone who may have been different in looks as well as their mannerisms may have been less threatening in some ways yeah yeah so that was really a challenging time definitely one of the lower points of my life I can imagine this yeah. poor child who you know when you go to the U.S. you really do stick out like a sore thumb because you, you're not from Correct. around here and then right. you go back to what is ostensibly home in inverted commas yes and you yes. don't really belong there either no so this like looking for a sense of belonging yeah has been an ongoing theme in my oh, life that is yeah so, so interesting and and you know it it i think it's at the heart of why you're so good at exploring those emotions i think it's because yeah. you know when we have a life that is pretty much just it goes along and there's no there's no sort of wrenching that is it is actually in that struggle that that some of this creativity is born i'm sure yes and words and stories became a framework for understanding my experience or making sense of it yeah and um it wasn't until recently that i realized that um it also gave me a sense of agency that was really missing and most everyone's childhood there's it's by nature you only have so much agency in your life as a young person and i think it was in in constructing stories or seeing it from the outside being able to take it outside of myself that gave me that little bit of holding on to what can i do with this how can i see this differently yeah. that keeps showing up and how and I you do things, really everything I, I think it's also that that perspective that you get because when you are a visitor somewhere you do yes. see things differently and then yes and then you return to what is familiar but is maybe unfamiliar so it gives you that sense of jarring and and yes perspective a really different perspective you know you see even your your home as being when you return to it, I know, I know from my own perspective, I've lived overseas for many, many years and there's something I still think magical about the day you get off a flight and you've been away for maybe even a year, you know, and you just, 
I always see it in this very nostalgic, gosh, that sense of home just sort of fills my belly, you know, with it. It's, it's a really, really emotional time. Yeah. So you must have had that from a very early age of I'm in a new place and I'm, I'm therefore, I, I guess it heightens your sense of observation. I think so. Yes. And over time, I think what I've done is cultivated a sense of home in very specific scenarios. Yeah. So the kind of nostalgia you speak of when I go back to Japan now, um, there are certain restaurants that have are have been around all these years and they're still there and still make the same dish the way I loved eating it when I was young. And then so there's um, a sense of home that 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 feeling of, oh, I'm here in my belly. Yeah. I've learned to find in more very specific places. In a flavor, in a, in a restaurant. In a flavor, yeah. right. In yeah. a flavor, in a sound, in, in, yeah. and smells also. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So your sense of place is built around, around those smells, sights, um, yes. things that take you back to, to moments. Right. Tactile experiences, yes. It kind of makes sense because your book, I want to remember this, recognizing the tiny moments that make a life. There it is, right there. Yeah. You've just (laughs) brought them all together and put them in one place. Right. It makes perfect sense. Tell me, because I haven't yet managed to read the book. I have all. Yes. But I would love to hear, you know, how did that come about? What what occurred to you as being, you know, did it make sense to you? Oh, yeah, this is definitely what I need to do. Or you put them all in one place and then thought, hmm, there's the makings of the book here. How did it, yeah. how did it come about? Well, how it came about was um, somewhat accidental. So I had signed up I for a course. It's called the Tiny Book Course. And um, it walks students through conception to finishing a book in six weeks and so by nature of that constraint you're supposed to keep your book content manageable and like get it done so my book took a little longer than six weeks but still I I still got it published Um, so as part of the recommendation for keeping it very focused was there were some ideas of a framework that you could use and using a list as a jumping off point was one idea that really spoke to me. And um, I had shown up to meet a friend for coffee one day and accidentally showed up an hour early. And I figured, okay, this is the time to prep for this book. So I went and grabbed a little tiny notebook and and pen. And um, I'm not sure what initially provoked the idea of remembering um, other than the, the book is dedicated to a dear friend of mine who's passed. Um, and she, the, one of our last correspondences was she was, she was re- rereading um, my blog posts and I had, did not know how ill she was at the time. Mm-hmm. And it really struck me how um, in hindsight, she was spending some of her last hours on earth reading what I'd written and making sense of it. And I think it was some of the things that she was responding to the tiny moments inside those stories that had planted a seed. And then it came to me that all, all I knew when I wrote, decided to write this book is I was going to dedicate it to her. What a gorgeous thing to do. Oh, thank you. 
And then the idea that came was, you know what? There are so many things that I say I don't want to forget. I forget mm-hmm. this every day. I get so caught up that I don't want to forget it. What if I actually wrote it down? Yeah. yeah. What if it's all in one place? The memories that are dear to me, the advice that I cherish, um, the the ideas, the the things that I do to get myself out of a jam, like those yeah. kind of things. Yeah. Like Your what if I guide compass? Yeah. Yes. So what if I just wrote those down? So in that hour that I had waiting for my friend to come, I just started making a literal bullet pointed list and then I looked back in that and said I can flush these out I can um, tell a a miniature story to go with most of them and um, and see if that manuscript works as a book and it worked well enough it didn't look like any book that I had ever seen before so there were moments of is this even really a book but yeah 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 but I think you know I'm I'm really looking forward to it landing on that little step it's going to be one of those, I love books that you can just pick up. I use poetry like this quite a lot. Donna Ashworth is a current favorite, but even just a book of roomy poems. Yes. Where in any given moment, and it really helps if the cover's beautiful and it's all about the tactile experience and you just open it and there's a message in there somewhere. Always, always. And yeah, I, I, I love that it came about from such a, heartfelt you know that that sort of that sentiment of wanting to dedicate it to somebody and here we are talking about her now so it does yes. keep people alive when you do it that does. You know, it really does just so magical um and I I think it puts you in touch with your sort of spiritual side which there is an element of we can carry on the dialogue even after mm-hmm. someone's not here yes very much so so for you it makes it it's it's kind of one of those things where it doesn't really matter when it goes out in the world what happens to it it's actually for you yes and for your friend and for people who knew her and you know it's it's I think that's what we relate to that's what makes it you know it's that very personal touch that makes it so appealing universally Uh. Gosh, amazing. And I know, you know, the reason we came together was because we were on a call and we were chatting about your latest project. Yes. Which is, that's also got an incredible story behind it. Yes. Which is, I think you're living into your own words, which is, you know, move from the heart and things will start, opportunities will come your way. Um, Especially when you put your words out there and people are drawn to them that's that's how you're going to form those connections so yeah. tell me a little bit about this magical card deck which yes. is going to be birthed in the world in the next few weeks yes so um the the card deck um it they it, there's 52 cards mm-hmm. one side of the card has a photograph um from the japanese garden in seattle that i used to work at and form some beautiful relationships at right. and they feature images from some some are from far back their vistas others are really close-up pictures of 
moss or flower petals or did you take the pictures or i took most of the pictures there's a handful mm -hmm. of them that my partner took because he's the head gardener there and since he has access to very tall ladders and different <laughs> um points of view than i have access to and i'm only like a little over five foot tall so everything that you can see is from kind of look lower to the ground than everybody else. So uh, so there was a, a number of pictures that were taken from a height that I cannot reach, but otherwise, yes. So I did the photography and those were collected over the years. And, um, and on each side, on the other side of each of those cards, there's um, just a short message. So some of them are kind of messages to ponder, other are little fill in the blank sentences. Um, each one is designed to help you um, just notice the moment that you're in and notice mm -hmm. the, what's happening inside that, that photograph, but it gives people a, a, just a tiny immersive experience of being inside the garden without actually being there. And yeah, um, yeah. it takes you out of nature around there. Yes, yeah, wherever you are, you can connect to nature and you connect to your own nature. I think that that second part of it is what was really dear to me is um, what nature invites us to do is to to connect the parts of ourselves that get pushed down in the busyness of every day. Yeah, yeah. And so, I knew when we were talking, you said, so this came about, so your partner's head gardener, so this yeah. is the Japanese garden is in, in central Seattle. Is that, yes, is that right? yes, it is, yes. And there was somebody involved with it too. Yeah. So in 2020 um, was the 60th anniversary of this public garden being um, in existence in Seattle. And uh, I had the idea that I would write a book to commemorate mm. this occasion. And since that was a large undertaking, I recruited my partner. And then I also um, sought out an advisor. Um, and uh, the advisor I reached out to is Ian Robertson. He um, was uh, the chair of the landscape architecture department at the University of Washington and um, had done a lot of work with the Japanese garden. And, and we met in the tea garden inside of the Japanese garden one day to wow. brainstorm this project. And what I expected to be a very sort of pragmatic conversation about what it is to write a book like this. I, I sought out a professor as an advisor for a reason, thinking <laughs> that I needed the structure to make a proper book. And he completely surprised me by blowing all of that out of the water wow. and inviting us into a much more expansive conversation about what is the walking through a garden a metaphor for? What is this design, what kind of experience is the design of a garden supporting? This was all inspired by, he, he had just been in New York City to um, meet with a publisher about a book on creativity, which is now out. Um, it's called Cultivating Creativity. And, ah, uh, yes. Uh, so, yes, he had um, just come back from meeting with uh, NYU Press, just brimming with ideas about how to take creativity out of the constraints of a directional experience and make it into a, a, a journey and experience something you cultivate 
something that's alive with its own energy. And all of a sudden, this I everything that I thought this conversation was supposed to be was out the window. And we were talking about um, how creativity needs a pathway and containment, but complete freedom to move about and become its own thing. Wow. And, and we were talking about the birth and death that happens continuously in the garden and how much that resonates in ourselves as humans yeah. and um, help us tap into our own creativity also, which is also another, really just another way of saying we're alive to find our own aliveness inside of us all through all these cycles. And I was so not expecting, it was so beautiful. I'm not even doing justice to the, the what transpired that day um, right now. But in the end of it, I thought this cannot look like an academic book. It has to be something else altogether and much more experiential to be true to the heart of why, why I wanted to do this project yeah, and what it can do for people. And um, I just thought it was such a privilege to be part of that conversation. And I wanted other people to have a piece of that, it, literally, through having literally. this book. Yes. So that was how I, I felt at the end of the conversation. And as we were walking away, he gently tapped me on the shoulder to say, I also wanted you to know that I'm not sure how long or how well I can support this project because um, I have recently been diagnosed with brain cancer. Oh my goodness. And um, we'll, we're finding out more, but um, I'll, I'll do what I can and I hope you carry on. And then of course, 2020 rolled around and the pandemic happened and I forget the exact day, but the last correspondence I had with him was through email where he, I had already heard through the grapevine that his prognosis was not good. Mm. And um, he had reached out to say, um, I just wanted you to know that I haven't forgotten about your project. I just can't. Mm. And it's beautiful. You have something here, please carry on. And it was, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. And I didn't think that I could do this without him. And so the, I, I sat with the project for over a year, not knowing what to do with it. And um, after he passed so earlier this year, 2022, I got the urge to bring it back. I, I felt the sense of urgency, I should say, to like bring it to life and how will I do it? And suddenly that, oh, if I stop, trying to make it a book and I present the ideas very simply in a card deck where it is nothing but an invitation for people to notice what's happening for them and create again that little immersive experience and if that you could do it if you have five seconds yeah you could take longer if you like and just but just literally offering up um, an opportunity to to engage with yourself and with nature that way. And a card deck could do that. So that's when the um, light bulb went on. And from there, it actually happened quite quickly.
So, um, isn't it amazing how when you connect that meaning, when you engage with the why behind it, the purpose, everything else, all the obstacles fall away. Yes. Yes. You just just find something inside you just makes the next step happen and next yes. step, and then you get that clarity through taking those steps and yes because really I can't believe how I mean it's such a touching story and so what was his what was the name of the the professor who wrote Ian Robertson Ian Robertson so I think yes. that book is going to be one that you know what a lovely yes. legacy to leave behind and yes of all the people to be creating this card deck, which is about tiny moments, you're the perfect person. You know? <laughs> it's right on brand. It's just who you are. It's just, yes. you know, they, it, it it makes perfect sense that it is a card deck and not a book. Yes. And I can see, I mean, I don't know if there's a gift shop at the, the Japanese garden. There's a very tiny one. And I just spoke to the gift shop manager this past weekend to kind of talk about how we will how we'll display it and so yes yeah. it's in the works it's almost there because that idea that you can take a little bit of the garden home with you yes is just magical and I think what you're going to do is spark a whole load of you know people to think well we could have a little card deck and the, you know make it yeah. personalize it to yes photos in your garden and yeah and then the beautiful thing for me is that each of those cards in turn actually spark their own moment of creativity. You know, some of them are prompts yeah. to go and, and do something yeah. creative yourself. Yes. Whoa. But we will be able to get these on. Yes. Know, we, can, we can buy them online somewhere. I yes. Yeah. Yes. They're on their wow. way. Wow. <laughs> That is just, uh, yeah, they're beautiful stories. And I can't wait to see the actual physical product. I mean, I yes. I love this. Again, it's a bit like the same thing with dipping into a book. Yes. Having a card deck that you can just pull a card. And yes. it's when you attach meaning to that, those yes. words in that moment. And it yeah. allows you to stop and pause and reflect yeah. a little bit. <sighs> That's what makes life priceless. It really does. It does. It yeah. does. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the remarkable thing is that here you are kind of resisting this, this um, title, this role of writer. Yes. And yet it's finding you all the time. Yes. Oh, it has. It's knocked, knocked at me for really all my life. And I didn't know it. It was... I, I know that um, Oprah likes to talk about how God speaks to you for, in whispers. And when you ignore the whispers, then, then you get a tap on the shoulder and <laughs> then it turns into something. Then it gets louder and then you get your, I, I'm not sure if she put it that way. I've, I've yeah. heard it so many times and now there's this whole, and I think it, it definitely, the writer title, it got to where like someone's shaking you by the shoulders before. I said yeah. yes. <laughs> and I love also that we were talking about you've even got another project on the go. You know, you're still yes. launching, you're just launching. This is these, yes. these cards have only just arrived, hot off the press, and you're already um delving into the the next project, which I love the idea that it was all about food and yes. that it takes that. I mean, 
So what you've done so cleverly is find the access point, find the way that you can build that structure. Yeah. And that, that makes it easier. I can just do a little bit at a time, one dish at a time. Yes. You know, with the cards, it was one card at a time, one photograph. Yes. And slowly yes. but surely you build up a body of work, which is yeah. such a beautiful way to approach it. It's been such an inspiration to me. It's sparked all sorts of things in my own head where I think overwhelm comes from thinking, oh, my God, I've got to write a book. Where am I going to start? And the, and the truth is that you start with one page, one one little. Yes. But even that, it can it, it just takes you away from that moment of blank page with the cursor flashing or, you know, blank page with your pen in your hand hmm, to, oh, right, okay, dishes, what comes up? And yes. so so talk to me a little bit about, about the next project so that we can whet people's appetite for- Oh, sure. The so the line. next project is sort of a hybrid memoir cookbook. And it is um, it was inspired by my uh, soon-to-be 18-year-old son oh. asking for a cookbook as a high school graduation gift. So he'll be graduating from high school in June of 2023 and this past summer. And he is not one to think of anything in advance. Like everything is very in the moment, but he pulled me aside and said, mom, in case you forgot, cause I think you did. The <laughs> one thing I want for graduation is a homemade cookbook. Oh my goodness. No pressure. And I said, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, but I had completely forgotten. And um, it's it was a very bittersweet. I realized that part, part of my forgetting was that I actually have so many dear memories tied up in food and mm. that it was um, very poignant to dive into that and kind of trace back where I've been and who I've come and, and food has been kind of a constant companion through, through the journey. So, um, so yes, this is sort of a coming in of age story of um, his, uh, him as a child, me as a mother completing a certain cycle in parenting yeah. as my, as I send my child off into adulthood. So um, me looking back, looking back at his childhood. So I, you know, when that and the intention is to weave some of those stories in along with stories I haven't told him about some of the things he, he's eaten a million times, but he doesn't know where it came from or what other stories or what makes that dish nostalgic to me. Yeah. And gives me a chance to tell those stories along with a way for him to recreate it when he leaves home. So so That's, that is the inspiration. And yes, we've, we've just gotten started with it. And um, gosh, speaking of tiny moments, so one, the first dish I decided to tackle was fried rice. And um, this past weekend, I made it and, for, and my partner got all excited and they took pictures of me making it. And I was so stunned when I looked at the pictures that we how loving it is to see someone doing something ordinary, like really see them. Yeah. Yeah. The pictures told their own story of the, the small things that I do with a certain amount of care that I, I'm not even conscious of, but it shows in the photographs. Yeah. 
And so do you have little, ja I can picture you with little Japanese, I mean, there's something about Japanese ceramics that I Yes, yes, I do. So yes, I'll, I will make a point of it. So now so we're adding pictures and yes so that will i can imagine even when you too. cook so you'll be putting little bits of soy sauce or ginger or something yes in a tiny little gorgeous dish that's just and you don't even realize you do it you just oh, yes i'm gonna i'm gonna use that dish to sort of yes oh my gosh yes tiny yeah. dishes lots of tiny dishes in yeah. our cupboard people open up our cupboards and are like wow so many and some of them are mismatched and they're hard to stack and they just take up a lot of space. Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm not Japanese, but I, I can't, you know, anyone who's listening to this, who knows me knows I can't walk past. Yeah. You've got a lot of dishes for soy sauce and you've got a lot of dishes that are a little <laughs> bit bigger than that, but you can never have too many gorgeous little Japanese dishes. No, I mean, it's, no. just, it's yeah. just impossible. No. And yeah, and it's just so lovely. I think there are two things about that that are really lovely. One is that your son really wants this book, you know, so he's helping you give that meaning to it. Yes. And the stories, therefore, will carry on and become a real tradition, that sort of sense yeah. of heritage that carries on. Yeah. Because were, were your kids born in the US or in Japan? Yes, they were. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it becomes even more important, I think, when you, yes. when you move countries and wanting yes. to keep hold of what those traditions are yes. so many of them are lost even within you know my, my grandparents are from the the north of of the uk and there's very different food traditions between the north yeah. and the south yeah but if we're not careful you know yeah. people don't carry them on and don't talk about them and the recipes get lost and and then you All forget that you ever ate those dishes Oh, absolutely. Yes. So part of this is my way of capturing what I can, because I didn't do this with my own grandmother who did a lot of the teaching me how to cook. Mm. And when she passed, I realized, oh, there are some dishes that are just gone with her because nobody took the time to actually write them down. Mm. We kind of watched her do it, but um, the real know-how. Yeah, we oh. never quite recreated some of them so there's some um, bittersweetness and recognizing that that's already happened and you know, loss happens we yeah, can't capture yeah. all of it um and also when i think about the story part of it is we live with people every day and don't know their stories no. especially between parents and children I think yeah. there's a lot of loss of the story heritage of where they came from. We just assume that they know or yeah, yeah, yeah. And is yeah. it true when children are little, they, they love to hear about, Oh, what, what happened then? What happened then? You know, and, yeah. and they, they want to hear the same stories again. And yes. again. You know, I, I remember there was a story about me when I was one year old and the, the, my parents had left me with a babysitter and the, building caught fire and, and so they're sitting in a restaurant and somebody runs in and goes you know the building's on fire and they had to they had to come in my dad had to climb in through the back balcony and you know it was all and we loved hearing that story but you just remember that not all of the stories were that momentous but yes you don't therefore hear the the more ordinary stories about just everyday yes. things yeah absolutely absolutely yeah and what was your what was your grandmother's name her grandmother, my grandma's name was Yae, that's spelled Y-A-E. 
Um, it means um, eight layers and comes from there's there is a, a, a particular cherry blossom called Yazakura that it has it it's the one with very it almost looks like a little peony with all the dense flower petals um clustered oh. together so it's um and i have never confirmed that if she got that name because she was the eighth child or not she came from a large family and i know that the first three children didn't live past age five gosh so um, there's a certain losing track of how many kids and so <laughs> just the way people did back then. Yeah, and right. That's just how it was. So, um, yes, like, were you the eighth daughter or <laughs> was the eighth child um, or was that counting even accurate? Um, but anyhow, that's what her name means. So I think of her when I see um, the yeah is that good at blooming some I yeah. see some of them here in Seattle and and I can just see a photograph of, of the, the blossom making it into the book I mean yeah weird, isn't it that is just, yes oh my goodness and yeah just something about cherry blossom is so evocative of a yes. Japan but b just the beginning of spring and there's nothing beautiful I don't think than yeah the way those flowers are caught against blue sky and yeah. yes are there any sure. are there any in the in the Japanese garden in Seattle? Um, yes and no. The the placement of the chair the cherry trees in the Japanese garden are um in rather wet soil and cherry trees don't like their roots oh, wet. So uh, just this past winter, they did this major drainage project and they had to uproot the trees that were there. Most of them had we're not well enough to to survive but so it's this fall early winter I think there's going to be a replanting Gosh. of these cherry trees now that they've improved the drainage and hopefully um, it will live on but it's not the most spectacular spot for cherry blossoms the University of Washington, which is just a, a mile or so from that garden, has uh, is famous for its cherry blossoms. There's there was, I believe, a, an international exchange where they the trees came from Japan, and so their quad is famous for cherries. And there is just yeah. the whole oh, snow show must be every amazing. Because yeah, the Japanese yeah. Japanese government are actually very good. I remember there's um. Yeah, there is a project. I think they've planted like something like twenty. I want to say twenty million. Maybe that's yeah. too many. But there was a whole. There was yes. a lot of trees came to the yes. UK, courtesy yeah. of the Japanese government. And yes. we we only we can only thank them because there are some beautiful spreads in in some of the London parks. You get yeah. amazing yeah. cherry blossoms, which is just oh. And I do. I mean, one of the most memorable trips I ever made was just before. The pandemic really broke. So I was in in Singapore and everyone was murmuring about this this new disease, this new um, flu. And we really needed to keep an eye on things. And it was um, it wasn't quite perfect blossom, cherry blossom season, but it meant that we my husband and I could just get into Japan. It was kind of it was still it was very much all this was happening in Asia. The US, there'd been no mention of COVID. Yeah, and yeah. Definitely, you know, okay, it might be like SARS. It's it's looking pretty serious. But we we took a risk and we said, right, I think we can get 
to Japan and we can still get out again. Yes. Or we'll be allowed back into Singapore. That was going to be the risk. And yeah. as a result of this, nobody came from China that year because yeah. China had already closed down. So we get to Kyoto and there's not a single tourist, which I, you know, all the local Japanese residents were just amazed. You know, it's just they hadn't seen Kyoto like that with because normally it's swimming with people and yes. everywhere's really crowded, especially that time of year. Oh, absolutely. And it is absolutely stunning. I mean, it's just everywhere you look, they're just the most amazing, gorgeous, gorgeous. And it's always against this crisp blue sky, which yeah. for some reason in Japan, it's, it's a beautiful shade of blue that just you don't get anywhere else. And mm-hmm. yeah, one of my most cherished memories. I think, oh, of, wow. Of yes. That's some of the good to come out of this special. pandemic. <laughs> right. Right. How special. You're always oh, I know about, yes, I think in 2019 was when I went last went to Kyoto and yes, swarming with tourists. Yeah. We thought we had, we were just going to miss the cherry blossom season, but they were very late blooming that year. So we ended up being there right at peak and it was gorgeous and busy everywhere. So, yeah, yeah. What so a, what a treat. I don't think we can ever recreate it. I think even now it's back, it's it's sort of coming back yes. very quickly and it will always be a top destination for a reason. Yeah. But you know, one of the reasons I was looking forward to having this conversation with you, Rumi, is because you're such a good storyteller and I love yeah. to have people come and share their stories. And you've already yes. told loads of stories, but and you've talked about the challenge as a child, which I think is where your sense of direction and uh, you know where your capacity as a writer it lies in that unusual childhood which must have been challenging at the time yeah now you're reaping the rewards but what what came up for you as a story about a challenge what came up for me was um in general how hard it is to be kind to myself wow that's the challenge that continues to plague me and there, there's roots in so many things, but um, it, it, I think as a child, and I think most children do this, you're, you're looking around for approval to, to see that you're okay, because at least I was not taught to look for myself. Does the, how does it feel right in your body was not a question that anyone ever asked me <laughs> as a child. So right or wrongness was always confirmed by looking out, looking out at some authority figures, looking out at what is group consensus. Um, and there was early on, because I had moved between different cultures and different value systems, there was a part of me that felt doomed all the time because like, well, this group of people believes this and this group of people believes that. So I can't make everybody happy. I can't get everybody's approval. Um, someone's always going to disagree. And rather, I know some people look at situations like that. Well, that means I'm free to decide whatever I want to. That was not my wiring. I was like, oh no, I am doomed. I will never be perfect enough. Yeah. So that belief has been one that I have, aside from just a general longing to belong, um, the, the belief that I do not need to look outward 
to find or even look for the right answer. What is? But there is no right answer out in the world. It's what's right for me. It was yeah. right, right for me. Yeah. It was I. I can assess that from how anything strikes me inside of me. Um, so, as a result of that, just um, when I'm get stressed or when I think I don't have enough time, I the not enough of all sorts um, happen. I tend to default to looking outward for approval. Even right. though I already know that I can't have it because all I can't have it the way I think I can have it because it's um, it varies. Yeah. Um, even though I know that I still do it, and then I get myself into this tailspin, and um, it's very hard to think of myself kindly and compassionately when I keep looking at like I am not measuring up to what whatever people think. matters so that is an ongoing challenge and do you think that you know that that looking to the external do you think that's a cultural thing for sure I think that is very yes um very much so there's um it is still very much a country that runs by everyone um valuing the collective experience over the individual experience Wow. So if, and, and not, and that has, that has its beauty, but it definitely has its shadow sides. If we don't acknowledge the individuals that make up the collective as unique, valuable entities. Yeah. And, and simply emphasize that everyone marching to the same drum beat, going in the same direction is what matters. Then it denies a lot of um, individuality underneath it or even individual experience yes that i think that was very much cultivated from that belief so it is it's it's fighting your own conditioning which is absolutely it is hard it's very hard um and then you add to that the layer of complexity of then then being sort of dropped into u.s culture and society and seeing things done differently. But as you say, you could have gone either way with that. <laughs> okay, well, I just get to make up the rules or, whoa, yes. there are a lot of rules and I'm not sure even which which rule system yes. I'm, I'm operating under. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Sure. But what yeah. strikes me is interesting is that you're recognizing the tiny moments, even the card deck is a way of having that constant reminder for those days where you wake up in that I'm not good enough. Yes. I'm not, I'm not living yes. up expectations. Okay. Yes. You can refresh. Yes. Reboot. Yes, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I know very, very much um, cultivating my own medicine. Yeah. but and, and, and I don't think you're alone. I mean, I, it resonates with me that feeling of, you know, sometimes I, with coaching clients, I say, well, let's, let's just celebrate. Let's just celebrate how far you've come. Let's just celebrate, you know, and I remember reading one of your blog posts, which we'll talk about your blog in a minute, but it was about saying, I did it. Even if it's yeah. the tiniest thing, I got out of bed this morning. I did it. Yes. <laughs> and how funny that can make the day feel and how accomplished you can feel by the yes. end of the day. <laughs> right. If you celebrate those tiny, tiny little wins, yes. as opposed to thinking, 
yeah, yeah, you know, I'm going to beat myself up about all the things I didn't do. Oh, I know. Which is where yes. we, we so often go to. Um, Absolutely. Now, I know, I mean, kindness, I can't think of a more kind thing to do than to dedicate a book to a friend, a dear friend who is no longer with us. I think that's just the most generous act. But, you know, was that was that the story you were going to tell me or... Did you know? So the kindness story that I wanted to tell you was about when my children were, um, were little and, um, they, I back, back then just getting them dressed to leave the house was a chore. And this particular day was a cold winter day. And I enticed them by, with the promise of donuts, get Mm -hmm. dressed and then we'll get Mm -hmm. in the car and we'll go get donuts. And, um, it, it took an ungodly amount of time to get them and close it out the door and to the donut shop. And then we finally get there. We sit down and this I, idea that I had, the picture that I had in my head was that I was going to treat my kids to something and we're going to mobilize and I will feel triumphant. And by the time I got there, I was, I was just exhausted. <laughs> It's only nine uh, <laughs> so we get there, we get our donuts, I get my coffee to go with it. And I don't even remember what it is I was talking to my kids about, but we were talking and then one table over, there were two women um, meeting. I assumed they were friends. And once in a while, they'd look over and I, I, I thought I was disturbing their adult conversation. But um, so then after a little while, they, they got up to leave and one left the door and the other one had her hand on the door. And then she abruptly turned around and walked back towards me. And and I was I was a little startled and she stood in front of me and said, I just wanted you to know that I thank you for showing up. I see that you show up for your children. It's been, I forget the exact wording right now, but I see that you're, you show up for your children. It's been lovely to be here. Thank you. Whoa. And it was absolutely not at all what I was expecting that day. And I couldn't, it's, that was not the, the triumph was about a sense of, having a sense of control. Mm. And I realized that what I really wanted was longing to feel was that how I am, whatever I'm doing is meaningful, that it's meaningful in the scheme of things. I think that everyday busyness of just those little things take us away from remembering that, um, showing up with heart really is enough yeah yeah it really is it really yeah and I hadn't been able to see that about myself I'm not even sure I was looking at my children that kindly but something that the intent must have still shown through enough to where it really struck this person and so there were two things that I got out of that that oh wow how powerful it is to look at things through a kind eye. Yeah. 
And you never know. I mean, when you said you never know what's going on in someone else's life. No, we don't. It's a kind eye rather than judging because you just don't know. No. And how powerful we are with our own words that the to her choice to turn around instead of just leaving to come back and tell me. And many years later, I still tear up thinking about the generosity of yeah. her choice in that moment to, to spend the, the extra minute yeah. um, acting on an impulse of kindness. So, um, And maybe what she saw in you was actually someone who, who was struggling. Yeah. Genuinely. And she just, and my friend, Melissa Camilleri, who she's a gorgeous soul and she coined the phrase, she actually trademarked, we rise by lifting others. Yes. And that story makes me think of that phrase. You know, it's so easy to lift someone. It really is. In, in a single moment when you're feeling buoyant, when you're okay. And yeah. you see somebody who, who you know, maybe it was that she saw you doing an amazing job and thought, wow, you know, but yeah. The way you tell the story, I have a sense it was more she saw that you needed that lift. That morning. Yes, yes. Gosh, that's a beautiful story, Rumi. So, so lovely. Yeah. And I'm I'm intrigued, given your um your background, you know, between Japan and and the US, how that translates for you into musical taste. Is music oh my gosh. plays a big light at your in your life? Um I think how that translates is that my musical taste is very much rooted in my 1970s childhood. Wow. Wow. Um, I didn't always have an easy relationship with my mother. Um, she was someone I, who I was always trying to impress or, um, and so I actually thought of two songs to, to share. Maybe I'll go ahead and share both. So the first song that came to me when I was thinking about music that matters is um, Another Day by The Wings. Not a song I know, but sounds okay. Cool. So it sounds very on brand, Another Day. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, um, so it's, yeah, it's just Paul McCartney singing. Um, oh, Wings. I, yes, I was going to say, why don't I know the band Wings? But yes, when he went out on his own. I when he went out on his own. So my mother was a big Beatles fan. And then, so we owned a lot of albums and music or albums back then were just really precious to her. So that when she gave me permission to put the touch the records and put them <laughs> on the turntable and listen to them myself was like a real sense of okay I'm in big time now yes. and I think maybe that that um that sense of pride permeates um my my love of 1970s music um and, and so you would choose another day and what, what was well, it? The reason song? why I chose another day. And it's funny when I look back, it's the first song on, um, I think that, that was on the wings greatest hits album. And it was the first song on there. And it's funny to listen to now. It's a very melancholy song about a woman who presumably works in an office building in a fairly menial secretarial job and and it's just day after day after day the same day except 
now it's in this song again i think it's the com- compassionate observation yeah. of someone doing their very best living their life maybe that was what spoke to me and um i i just loved the the honesty of this the arm varnished truth of this protagonist of the <laughs> woman he's singing about the yeah. she that he's singing about being celebrated in a song just being herself and i think for mccartney there were probably lots of people when he was growing up for whom that was life just yeah go, go do your yeah. your day job and another right. day and right and i think it was probably just a a, a way of affirming that their lives mattered maybe not that different from the woman in the coffee shop who came and talked to me yeah absolutely. that was one of the songs that I listened to often because again it was the first song on the album it was memorable um so and the other song that came to me that really mattered this was many years later my son was oh 13, 14 at the time, and just really discovering music for his own and the, some of the stuff he was listening to, I just couldn't stand it. And the more, <laughs> the more I, and there were, this was sort of the rise of like YouTube stars making random parody music. And there was, anyway, he was playing stuff that was just like not okay with me, like musically not okay. And and we were in the car one day and goes, mom, I have a favorite new song. Can I play it? And I'm like, no, like, I do not. I have not liked it. I already know I hate it. No, I'm already, I already know I hate, I'm going to hate it. Like, no, no, no. I promise. I promise you won't hate it. Please. Can I play it? Please. Can I play it? And after however many times I was like, fine, go ahead and play it. And it completely, and he played ain't no mountain high enough. Oh, by Marvin Gaye. Oh, Tim. my goodness. Yeah. And you're like singing along. <laughs> and, Terrell, and I was like, what? This is your new favorite song? Yeah. Um, I think this is like top of the list, mom. I don't think it's going to change. I love this song. Wow. Um, it must so, have been, a, I can suddenly see light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. <laughs> We've broken um, through the bad music phase. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And more recently we were in the car together and I, we, I asked him about this moment and I did not realize, I, I don't hear, hear him listening to Marvin Gaye that often, but he has not forgotten and like told me a whole story about Marvin Gaye's life and his relationship with his father and wow. all the tensions he's lived through. And so um, sometimes the timelessness of yeah music it it travels through time and space and comes back again and it bonds us and it's so true and that's why i love talking about it but it for me that song will always transport you back to that moment in the car where you go oh, no my. no please please do we have to have oh absolutely <laughs> and, and it's one of my favorite i'm so glad i was wrong yeah yeah moments which is something I've been actively collecting in my mind is I spend so much time trying to be right. Yeah. (laughs) And there's something so satisfying about the moments when you are proven wrong and it's, it's it's delicious. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a good thing when it's oh, it is absolutely a good thing that I was like, oh my gosh, I was completely wrong. And there's something at being able, about being able to surrender my righteousness in that moment too. Yeah. That makes that oh okay, I was wrong. And, and a real what, what celebration of the song. Yeah, the yeah. truth of it was oh, so much better. Yeah. Oh, beautiful, beautiful stories. And I will really look forward to adding those to the playlist. It's yeah. getting longer. And I I still now I can flick flick across to, you know, I love just running with playlists. And whenever I put the playlist from this podcast on, it's now getting so long that there is always a pleasant surprise. It's always like, yes. oh, it's right, yeah. And I, I sometimes even have to, who was it who put that there? Who, yeah. who added this to the list? But yeah, so so far we've had no double ups and each one has a story behind it, which is just amazing. Oh, that's lovely. That's yeah. amazing. It is, isn't no it? Double ups. Yeah. 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 And just it's so completely eclectic, different songs from different ages. There's some classical music there. There's songs I've never heard of. There's some that I I would never have listened to if I, you know, hadn't yeah. started this. So in my own way, the playlist is becoming that kind of a bit like your your book about moments it's it's taking me to certain moments and it's kind of that that real reminder that when we put together a collection of stuff and we just add a little little bit every every week or so it builds up you know that's the way to actually build something when yeah. when it feels like an overwhelming task just amazing yeah, for sure now Rimi, you have it's, it's, it strikes me you're you're named after that very famous poet the um the ancient poet who again shares so much wisdom and and I think yeah Rumi by name and Rumi by nature it's um you've shared so much wisdom just in your writing but also in the way you approach life which is to not beat yourself up now I th I think that's changed I think that's where you you've learned from how much that has not served you as a narrative yes. yeah but what is the wisdom that you would share that you kind of keep coming back to yes. is there is there one piece of wisdom that that has been a yes with yeah you? and this is I wrote about this in my book um so I'll share the short version of that story is that um I used to think courage was like a trait like something that you know, cur courage is like a personality trait like you're you know outgoing or something like that um and not of myself as courageous and i sat in a, a talk for um parents of children preschool age many years ago in a church basement and the speakers defined courage as taking a step in the direction of what you know to be right when it would be easier not to wow and it completely rewrote this idea that courage is a trait and courage was actually a choice and it's a choice that happens in that split second when you know something is more right but not easier and what will you choose yeah. and um remembering that when i 
So I guess the piece of wisdom is to like start to notice those tension points when you feel the tug were right, but it's, it's not easy to not leap in the direction of what's right necessarily, but take that one step. What does that one step look like? Yeah. And see there, there is something about just one, not that I would necessarily want to turn around and come, come, come back around, but that made it less threatening. Like just like one step in that direction. Um, you won't have, have traveled so far from where you were before. And that feels like, yeah, you've just summed it up that courage isn't, isn't like being an introvert or an extrovert. It's, it's like a muscle that you can build. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Golden, golden nugget. Really, really precious. Thank yes. you. Yes. Thank you. Um, and then we didn't mention, so you do have anyone who wants to keep up with you, there'll be links in the show notes. Yes. But you do have, uh, is it a weekly blog? Yes. I have a, a, and shared out a newsletter. I call it um, Nudge is the name of it. Yeah. And again, the tiny things. So the yeah. little nudge and uh, relates to this courage story in the direction of what we know to be right. So little bits of inspiration and um, sometimes just news about what, what I'm up to. So that's what I share there. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining me. And yes. I look forward to seeing those, the card deck in particular. Yes. Making its way because it's it's physically around now and it's going yes. to yes. physical locations where you can buy it, but you can Absolutely. buy them online. Yes. And I can only think that when people hear these stories and especially the, the story of the card deck and how it came about, yeah, they're going to want to go and check it out because, yeah, it's a magical thing that you've done there. Thank you. Yeah. I can't wait to hear all the different ways that people um, use them and interact with them. Yeah. And that would be a lovely thing to do to, given that you have the newsletter, you have ways yeah. to you, find you on Instagram. Yeah. And- and see what what creativity is sparked yeah by, yeah by those little sure. that you're putting out into the world it's beautiful work that you're doing thank keep you up, keep up what you're doing because i feel like you're on a roll now that Aww. these projects will just as you said in your in your in your story right at the beginning in your own on your own website when you take that step in that direction these things just come and find you when you're leaning into your strengths. Yeah. yeah. Just amazing. Thank you. So best of luck with it. And thank, thank you Kat. for being here. All right. Thank you, Kat. Bye, Rumi. Oh, my thanks go to Rumi for what was a really lovely conversation. It was like a big warm hug. And I'm happy to say that since we recorded that conversation, her little book, I Want to Remember This, has arrived and it really doesn't disappoint. It's full of little prompts and stories and even a space where you can write your own reflections. So if you'd like to get your hands on a copy, you can go to Amazon or any major bookstore, but also Rumi's own website, Rumi Sushihashi. And I better spell it for you because it's not the easiest. So that's Rumi, R-U-M-I, Tsushihashi, T-S-U-C-H-I-H-A-S-H-I dot com. 
There you'll find links to the beautiful card deck, which is now available, and the book itself. I've also put links in the show notes and to the little book project, which is how she got this whole thing off the ground in the first place. I'm so grateful to Rumi for all the work she does, putting out inspiration into the world to spark creativity and and inspiring others to do the same. And it goes without saying that I'm also very grateful to you for being here today to listen to this conversation and hopefully be inspired yourself. Have a great week and don't forget to capture those moments. Thank you so much for listening. There are almost a million podcasts out there to choose from, so I really appreciate you for choosing this one and spending your valuable time with me today. If you found it helpful, I would be truly grateful if you would rate and review it as it helps others to find us. And if you haven't already, you can hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to be sure of getting every episode sent to you. You can find all the resources we talk about and more about my guests in the show notes over at collectivewisdom.podbean.com or you can find me on Instagram at collectivewisdompod where I'd love to hear any feedback, suggestions for new guests or comments that you have. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're interested to know more about how my coaching can help you, you can find more about that on my website at catpreston.com. Thank you so much for joining me.